0: Hello, hello, and welcome to episode number one of Through the Needle. This is a podcast where we will be looking at the complexities of neighborhood transformation and dreaming together about what in the world God might be inviting the church to do in response to that transformation. So, I'm really excited for this project because I've been intrigued by cities and neighborhoods and the transformations that happen in them for a number of years now. And I think this is an important conversation to have for church leaders and ministry practitioners that are in changing neighborhoods or church planters moving to neighborhoods that might be considered unstable or just on the brink of transformation. And really, I think it's applicable for any follower of Jesus in a setting where their neighborhood is changing. And in fact, This conversation is important for all those people in settings where their neighborhood is not changing, yet. Because if Christ calls us to love our neighbor, and if the local churches are to be working for the good of their neighborhood to expand the kingdom of God, then they need to be aware of the changes that are occurring in the lives of the people in their community and doing the hard work of finding out how to be a presence of Christ in the midst of change. So I'm excited for this and I hope you are too. Let's get to it. So for the four episodes of this podcast, I want to just give information about neighborhood transformation so that we can understand it better and know why it is important. Then we're going to look at the root causes of neighborhood transformation and hear from some local church and community leaders and some urban planners. And I'm going to try to give some theological implications of neighborhood transformation. Then we're going to end with some options for churches as they confront their neighborhoods transforming. To frame our larger conversation, I'll just introduce myself real quick. I'm Tyler Yoder, and my wife and I are currently starting a new church here in Richmond, Virginia, called Garden City Church, and we're in the Blackwell-Manchester area of the city. It's a neighborhood that is currently undergoing rapid transformation. Now, I haven't always lived in the city. I grew up on a farm about four miles outside of a town of 477 people per the 2010 census. So what some people might call the middle of nowhere. Decidedly not a city, and I loved it. Uh, But the physical transformations that happen in that area are fairly minimal. You know, some small farms get bought out by bigger farms, houses here and there are renovated or sold or torn down. The biggest transformation that happened there was actually the addition of a wind turbine farm, but none of this was really astronomic or overnight. I can still go back there after living away for a decade and recognize the majority of the buildings, the majority of the people, and the majority of the cows even. Well, I mean, they're, they're different cows, but, but they're in the similar places. And I grew up in the church. I did all the youth group things. I worked at Christian camps three summers during college. I even got my associate's degree in youth ministry. Then my wife and I got married, and we lived in Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is a city of about 40,000 people. It's a small city, but it is a city nonetheless, and during my brief foray into the business and accounting world, I started commuting to work by bicycle so my wife and I could save money and not have to buy another vehicle. On my bike rides to and from work, I saw the world from a different angle and a much slower speed. I saw the buildings at the ground level, I recognized the topography of the land, I noticed small details that never would have stuck out to me before, and of course I also worked hard to get all the Strava KOMs along my commute route. And then, about a week or two after I started riding to work, a new bike path was completed right along my commute route, which meant that instead of having to ride seven miles on busy main roads to work, I could ride three miles on a dedicated bike path through the city parks, which then led me to about four miles of quiet side roads right to my work. I was really thankful for this. um, But then I started wondering how things like this come about, how bike paths come about. And I started reading about public advocacy. Uh, which led me to learning about zoning codes and reading about how cities are structured and different theories about how they could be structured. Pretty much everything I could find on urban planning and I could read quickly at work. So Sorry, Kevin, if you're listening to this, that I spend a lot of time at work reading about urban planning. Anyway, in my reading, I started to come across something called gentrification, and it intrigued me. So I started asking questions. Why does neighborhood transformation happen? Are the changes of neighborhood transformation always bad, or can they be good? How do you know the difference between those? And the most important question, what should people do, especially churches and followers of Jesus, in response to those changes? So this project is partly the culmination of my three years of seminary in preparation for starting a church, But it is also part of the process of me confronting these questions as my wife and I have moved into what some might consider an unstable neighborhood, a neighborhood that is on the brink of transformation, or really is in the throes of transformation. So if you're not familiar with the term gentrification, I'm going to let someone who's a little more familiar with the conversation surrounding it introduce the term for us.
1: My name is Shekinah Mitchell. I currently work for a community development financial institution doing uh, comprehensive community development work that's rooted in community engagement. At a very surface level, gentrification is simply the resurgence or reentry of middle and upper income residents into a low to moderate income community.
0: So. The term gentrification was introduced in 1964 by a British sociologist named Ruth Glass as she observed the gentry, or what we in here in America would consider the upper middle class. The gentry was moving into lower-income, working-class neighborhoods, renovating the homes there, and slowly transforming the neighborhoods to the taste of the gentry. The neighborhoods were being gentry-fied. However, in recent years, uh, especially the last 10, the term gentrification has taken on many additional layers. For many, the original meaning is still the most important. For others, it refers solely to rising property values. Uh, For a small percentage of people, gentrification is a good thing as neighborhoods are becoming less blighted, incomes are going up, things like that. And for others, gentrification really can mean anything that furthers the oppression of oppressed people within cities. So, I just want to be clear that when we use the term gentrification in this podcast, we are referring to the definition that Shekinah gave us, that gentrification is when middle-income people are moving into lower-income neighborhoods and conforming those neighborhoods to cater to their tastes. The many different usages of the term has come because people have recognized what happens when property values rise and lower-income neighborhoods cater to middle-income tastes. People are displaced. As the cost of their homes goes up, there's a large group of people who are essentially prisoners to the system, who do not have the luxury of choosing where to live, but instead have to find where to live, places that meet their budget. This means that in many areas, such as the neighborhood that we currently live in, that I currently live in, people that have lived in neighborhoods for decades and generations now have to find somewhere new to live. So going forward, when I use the term gentrification, what I am referring to is the original meaning. Lower income neighborhoods being transformed to cater to middle income tastes. This plays itself out in many different ways. And, you know, it might be a new microbrewery opening up or specialized cafes or more ritzy restaurants coming in or some homes being torn down and replaced with fancy condos or luxury apartments or something similar. Now, what I am not saying is that there is not validity to the other definitions, because when gentrification occurs, the oppressed are often further oppressed, but neighborhoods are also becoming safer and less blighted. We can't overlook that. And even though gentrification is an important issue to be aware of and an important thing to be studying, and we're going to continue talking about it in this podcast, we do have to recognize a larger fact one that may surprise you if you have been reading about gentrification for a while. Gentrification is very rare. I know, I know, you're probably thinking, but Tyler, I hear about gentrification all the time. It can't be that rare. And that's what I thought too when I started doing more in-depth research about it. I was expecting that it was not going to be rare. But current research shows that unless you live in a New York City or a Chicago or a Washington, D.C., gentrification is very rare. And you'll notice that I'm not saying that gentrification does not happen elsewhere. And I'm not saying that it's not happening on a large scale in those cities. And it is a big thing that we should be studying about and learning about. Now, gentrification is happening elsewhere. It's happening here in Richmond. It's probably happening in this neighborhood that I live in. But I'm just trying to say that, that it is on a much smaller scale than what we often read about. And there are other kinds of neighborhood transformation that are happening that can sometimes be lost in the conversation. I have become convinced that gentrification is a little bit overhyped these days. In fact, I was just reading a study done by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, which came to the same conclusion, and I quote, gentrification and displacement of long-term residents was most intense in the nation's biggest cities and rare in other places. So if we actually play this out, this means that in those large cities, neighborhoods all around the city are currently being gentrified, but in smaller cities, there may be a neighborhood here or a neighborhood over there that gentrify every few years. Alan Malik comes to a similar conclusion than in his book The Divided City, and I'll put I'll put links to these in the show notes. And both of them, the, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition or the NCRC, and Alan Malik in separate studies found that when gentrification occurs, it most often happens in these larger cities. And when they describe what neighborhoods are most likely to gentrify. In separate studies, they both found that gentrification often happens to neighborhoods that are next to downtown business districts, and that it actually happens most often, three quarters of the time in fact, to lower income white neighborhoods. Now, however, when you realize that black and Hispanic peoples make up quite a bit less than one quarter of the U.S. population, it still holds true that they are disproportionately affected by gentrification. And when a black or Hispanic community is gentrified, the people moving in will be almost without exception white middle class individuals. And then Melk adds in one more feature of neighborhoods that are most likely to gentrify, what he says the designers call the fabric of the neighborhood. Usually this means that the housing stack available for renovation is attractive to upper middle class residents. So there's older and larger attractive houses with bigger yards and a smaller shopping street in the middle of the neighborhood. So if you're wondering if your neighborhood might be ripe for gentrification, these are the factors to look for. Nearby vibrant downtowns, lower income, generally white residents, and an attractive neighborhood fabric. So, now that we understand gentrification a little more, and even though I do contend it is rarer than we often think, before we get into the other side of neighborhood transformation that we will be talking about, I think it would be good for us to listen to Shekinah's story of her Churchill neighborhood here in Richmond gentrifying, so that we can understand more what it is like for a resident as they see their neighborhood gentrifying around them. Let's listen to what Shekinah has to
1: say. So, um, Churchill, or I think Richmond in general in the 90s, was a really tough place to live. Um, While, like, of course, I had friends and family and people that I loved and knew, and it was just like life. Um, It was a hard place. Like, Richmond was known as the murder murder capital of our country for a few years because the rates of violence were so high. And um, poverty has been deeply concentrated in the East End, specifically in, in the Churchill area. I mean, 60% of all public housing units in our city are in that small geographic footprint. Um, and all of the challenges that come with concentrating poverty were there. Um, and I want to be clear in naming too that I don't believe that poverty is like the sum of individual moral failures. It is systemic injustice their structures that create poverty right um, but so be- because of that yeah I mean it was a challenging place to live and at the same time it was also you know the place where um, I learned how to ride my bike. It was a place where, you know, my neighbors were just, like, so proud of me and literally made signs when I um, was a valedictorian at my high school. Um, Yeah, it was a place of just, like, joy and memories for me, even in the middle of that. Um, and so, as someone seeing the changes coming, there was a part of me that was excited to realize, like, I've known this place has been special and incredible for a long time. And other people recognizing that is a good thing. Like, naming, instead of Churchill being like, that's the place where you don't go, it being an attractive like desirable place felt like this is a good thing um, seeing new interests in the neighborhood seeing properties that have been vacant or blighted coming to life um, felt like a really good thing but then <laughs> uh, what became challenging was is that like my husband and I are renters now um, and have been renters this whole time and we had four different addresses in five years because the property values were rising so much. And so we had a couple of owners that we had been renting from um, say, Hey, you guys have 60 days to move out because we're going to sell the property. Or they would say, um, When you renew your lease, the rent is going up by 100 bucks, 150 bucks. Um, or, you know, there was one place in particular that we lived where there were um, speculators and prospective developers coming to our apartment almost like once a month really? to walk through, yeah, um, and it changed hands two or three times even as we were living there and they always say, we've got to honor your existing lease, but as soon as this is up, we just want you to know your rent is going up at this much. And my husband, of course, was just like, Shekinah, let's just go live somewhere else. You know, like, yeah. um, and culturally it was things like and this is the example i use all the time but there was a soul food restaurant that i would have my birthday party at and you know love the food and everything um that's now a store that i don't feel like i belong in when i walk through there aren't like products there that i or food there that i'm necessarily familiar with Mm -hmm. it's not bad it's like you know a ton of organic stuff and kombucha and you know but it's it's not my scene i don't feel like i belong there um and so what started as like oh finally people realize churchill is amazing switched to i don't feel like i belong here Mm -hmm. even though i've lived here my whole life like the places and the experiences that have been familiar are now changing and i can't even i'm fighting to have to live here Mm -hmm. right and even the the search process for housing, because the demand was so high, um, there there were literally times where I had to say to folks showing our showing us properties, like, "Would you live here?" Um, because the state of the housing was just crazy, and they knew, like, "Hey, if y'all don't want it, there are ten other people who will yeah. move here." Because, yeah. Move it yeah, and so that was really, really hard to feel like I'm being pushed out of, the neighborhood, of my neighborhood, right? And, like, my family had lived here for generations. Um, and so I just was determined that I'm not leaving. And we've been fortunate. There is a faith-based affordable housing organization called Urban Hope um, that we rent from, and that's provided stability for us, um, which has been great in terms of our housing. But we feel lucky because Urban Hope, as amazing of an organization as it is, it's a small affordable housing organization, um, and so they don't have the capacity to serve all of the folks in the in Churchill and the East End who need affordable housing. Um, so there's been a sense of like grieving what was and also grief as you're seeing um, folks get tired of fighting to stay um, or who literally are like pushed out. And now the only places they can afford are outside of here, especially when they are pieces of your identity that are connected to this place. So um, I had a friend of mine who was telling me about a neighbor who. You know, he lived in one of the public housing communities, didn't have any children, but uh, because he didn't have any children, he intentionally invested in the kids in his like little cul-de-sac and everybody called him uncle, they knew who he was. um, And he had become like a father figure within his community. And that was a huge part of like his identity, his self-worth. And he, you know, when moved out into the county, no one knew him there he couldn't be the creepy guy like trying to be friends with the kids you know what i mean and it totally like disrupted his sense of purpose and like value of who he was and so it's there's definitely a sense of grief when seeing um seeing those types of things happen and again feeling like you don't belong in a place that was once very familiar and safe um and some people will look at Churchill and say, well, it's totally gentrified and there's nothing that we can do. But I'm actually still really hopeful that there still is an opportunity to see the community be accessible to all people and to be yep. inclusive. And I think it's going to take proactive strategies. We can't just like wait for the market or yep. even the government to do something different. Um, we have to work hard for that. But that's a part of why Get to do the work that i do um at lisc is fighting for that accessibility for all people mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: okay so yeah that that is the gentrification side of neighborhood transformation and as you as you heard it is real and it does affect many people and it's important for us to pay attention to but Moving on in the conversation, even, even though gentrification um, is very important, there are far more neighborhoods changing in a different way than gentrification. It's something that the church also needs to pay attention to. Most neighborhoods that are in transition are actually doing the opposite of gentrification. Homes are losing value. The wealthier families are moving away and jobs are becoming more scarce. Local businesses are closing down and no businesses are replacing them. In his book, The Divided City, Alan Malik recounts a time when he was studying Indianapolis and looking for neighborhoods that had gentrified. What he found was that between the years 2000 and 2014, only five neighborhoods had gentrified, while a total of 60 had declined from middle income to low income over the same time period. It is a very different kind of transformation, but it is still a transformation, and I would venture to guess that the root issues behind this kind of transformation and the transformation of gentrification are extremely similar. It is the same drive within people that causes some neighborhoods to consistently decline while others rapidly gentrify, and unsurprisingly, much of it has to do with money. And there are two different types of factors that play into this. First are the cultural factors, which then influence the economic factors. Culturally, there are different types of people moving into neighborhoods with a lot of buying power these days than there used to be. Alan Malik, I'm gonna continue talking about him a lot because his book was very important in my research. Alan Malik labels these people as the young grads, essentially young adults between 20 and 35 years of age who have recently graduated college. These people suddenly have more money coming in than going out because they're not paying for their tuition, and their buying power influences a lot of the direction that neighborhoods take. Many of these young grads haven't even opened a retirement savings account yet. And in fact, a survey of 1,000 young grads revealed that 49% of them spent more money eating out and buying coffee each month than they saved. And 27% spent more on coffee alone than they had been saving for retirement. Young grads also have a strong desire to live in walkable and dense places. They want to live nearby their friends and be able to walk to things that they like to do so they don't have to pay as much for transportation. Part of the reason for this with the young grads is that people are delaying having kids longer than ever before. In fact, in 2017, the U.S. hit an all-time low birth rate. It actually dropped between 2016 and 2017. The birth rate was negative. Malik says that even though the number of households in the U.S. has doubled since 1960, the number of married couples with children has gone down. Only 19% of households are married couples with children, and in urban areas, it is even less. He points out Cleveland only having 7%, and Pittsburgh only 9%. This completely changes what people are looking for in neighborhoods. As these young grads choose where to live, they aren't thinking about their kids. They aren't thinking about what neighborhoods would be good places for their children to grow up, or about the schools there. They are choosing where to live purely based on what things will benefit them. It's, I could live above the new microbrewery across the street from the corner cafe, walk to the park system, and catch the bus for work easily. They're not thinking, are there close parks with playgrounds so we can get outside? Is there room for a yard that our children could play outdoors? What type of school district is this? Are there other kids nearby the same age as my kid? Where's the nearest daycare? Will there be room to park my minivan? And because their priorities are different, The way that people spend money before they have kids is very different as well. And finally, the young grads are choosing where to live based on the experiences they can have living there, rather than choosing where to live based on what kind of job they can get. Often, they are choosing where to live and then finding a job once they get there. This isn't always the case, but for a growing number of people, it is. This means that as more amenities are added to neighborhoods, more young grads are attracted to them because of these amenities, and they have very different spending habits and discretionary spending money than the current residents. So, As you can tell, the changes in the cultural factors heavily influence the economic factors, but there are also specific changes in the broader economic landscape that have nothing to do with young grads, no matter how important we might tell ourselves we are to the world. And yes... That means I fall into the young grad category. But the phenomenon of young grads moving into cities and urban neighborhoods and droves has a very large effect on the neighborhood landscape. So outside of cities, the young people are leaving and they're not coming back. And inside of cities, the percentage of young people is growing rapidly with no signs of slowing down. Anyway, the economic changes that cities are undergoing have a very large effect on neighborhood transformation. So for one, the major industries in the U.S. have changed drastically in the past few decades. With the influence of technology and the newest digital revolution, many jobs are completely different than what they used to be. So gone are the days when a working-class job was able to provide a comfortable middle-class lifestyle. Now, I have to interject quick. When I say that a working-class job could provide a middle-class lifestyle, I essentially mean it was able to do that for white people. I need to briefly acknowledge here the harm that racism has done in our history and how our current situation in our cities has been shaped by that history. However, my focus for this project is not racism— There are many resources available if that interests you more. My main focus here is the underlying issue that has perpetuated and exacerbated the effects of racism on our neighborhoods and how this issue is affecting us today. And that issue is the problem of money. Okay, back to what I was saying. So gone are the days when a working class job was able to provide a comfortable middle class lifestyle. And here are the days when the majority of working class jobs are just enough to get by. Percentage-wise, most of the middle class job offerings are held by the eds and meds sectors, educational and medical institutions. Of course, I have to acknowledge that this doesn't mean all working class jobs are now low income. I'm not trying to paint with broad strokes here, but I'm just trying to point out big shifts in the economy. As jobs change and wages and salaries change, this means that neighborhoods are also changing. So going back to the study I quoted earlier from the NCRC, they found that, I'm quoting again, most low to moderate income neighborhoods did not gentrify or revitalize during the period of our study. They remained impoverished, untouched by investments and building booms that occurred in major cities and vulnerable to future gentrification and displacement. What I am trying to get at with all of this talk is this, for whoever you are listening, while the chance of your neighborhood gentrifying might be low, the chance of your neighborhood undergoing a major transformation or be in the middle of a major transformation or having just recently undergone a major transformation is very likely. It might not be a stark change like gentrification, but it will be a change. The buildings and the yards and the streets may look mostly the same, but the makeup of your neighborhood is probably changing. This is why this is an important conversation for church leaders to have. Whether your neighborhood is gentrifying or not, your neighborhood will likely be transforming. If the local church is supposed to be the presence of Christ in their local context, this means that we, church leaders, have to do the hard work of intimately knowing our local communities so that we can know what kind of transformations are taking place and where God might be inviting us to focus. If we don't do this work, we risk either harming our local communities or even shutting our doors completely. The NCRC cites the outcome of the Lincoln Temple United Church of Christ in Washington, D.C. It was a bustling congregation that started in the 1860s and they had to shut their doors in 2018 after shrinking to just 20 members. I do not believe that this kind of outcome is what God is inviting the church to. I believe that it is the responsibility of the church to change as their neighborhood changes and work for the benefit of the long-term residents in their local community as the neighborhood is changing. The church should not completely change their focus to the new residents, but should welcome them as they work for the benefit of the residents who are being most affected by the change. I think, in order to do this work well, the church must repent of our collusion with capitalism and embrace the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. I think that the church needs to confront the issue of neighborhood transformation head-on. This doesn't mean making public stances on neighborhood issues, but it means leaning into the tension of change, leaning into the empty space left in the middle, and searching for God in each person in your neighborhood. Woo, that's it for the introduction. Uh, a lot of information, I know, and if you're still with me, I think you're ready for the challenge that is ahead of us and ahead for the American church. This seems like a lot to handle, but I know that the power of God and the animating presence of the Holy Spirit in our local churches and church leaders can take this challenge on and come out the other side stronger and more dependent on the power of God than ever before. In the next episode, we're going to move further into this conversation, looking at the church's collusion with capitalism and what Jesus might be asking us to do by looking some at the conversation Jesus has with the rich young man in Matthew 19. I'm excited for this, and I'm excited for where this conversation will take us. Until next time, grace and peace.